Hey everybody, long time no here. This is Derek M. Cook, the writer, creator, and producer of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear and up until not too long ago. Podcasts that released a new episode pretty much every single week. And then life happened. October was an incredibly busy time for me. And while I did try to keep up on the podcast then, right after Halloween, I got really sick. I got COVID, y'all. I got really sick, and it was brutal. Brutal. I got COVID, and Beth was right here with me for, like, almost an entire week nonstop. I was feeling really bad. I was hacking up all sorts of grossness coughing all the time, sneezing, it was and uh, after testing negative for COVID for a couple of days, uh, I finally tested positive, I told Beth to get out and go because I didn't want her to get sick, but she was already starting to feel sick herself, and I guess it was a trial run for for her and I, really putting the uh, in sickness part of our upcoming in sickness and in health nuptials uh, to the test. And, yeah, she recovered a lot quicker than I did. And eventually went home after six days or so. And I continued to isolate for a while. Now, I have seen a couple of doctors. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't get on the right medication right away. And I just had to write it out. I am doing so much better now. But the podcast, the stream over the Monster Kid Movie Club on Twitch my personal writing, so many things, took a huge hit. And I dropped the ball. I mean, I had to. I had to take care of myself. And I know most of you, if not all of you, understand and have my back. And I really appreciate that. So thank you. Y'all are awesome. Now, I am still feeling like I've got a touch of a cold hanging on. Just just kind of barely hanging on to me there. But for the most part, I'm pretty much recovered. I will be slowly adding things back into my life and my routine as I continue to recover uh, from all of this. This I would not wish on anybody. It was pretty rough. So, again, thank you for your patience as we get things up and running. There are a few creators out there, fellow podcasters, uh, enthusiasts, writers, content creators, that sort of thing, that I trust my podcast with. One of them is Steve Turek. Now, he does the Diecast Movie Podcast, but he's been on the show repeatedly in the past. He's a longtime friend of Monster Kid Radio and of me, and he reached out to me and asked if I would like him to produce another episode of the podcast while I was recovering. And I didn't get back to him right away because I just I couldn't. I wasn't feeling well. But when I did finally have enough oomph to get back to him, yeah, I, I let him know, sure, if he wanted to do another episode, that'd be great. And he did. Now, Steve stepped up and really filled in the blanks for me, man. I, I don't know how Monster Kid Radio could have continued while I was moving and everything. So having Steve there to help me out was just amazing. And that's what you're going to hear this week. No bells and whistles, no ads, no segments, just Steve talking with another fellow podcaster, a writer, a producer, somebody that I respect, that 
I kind of wish he lived closer because I'd love to go out to coffee with him on the regular. Uh, Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors podcast uh, joins Steve this week to talk about a movie that I've always wanted to talk about proper on the show anyway. I regret that I didn't get to be part of this conversation, but second best thing, a couple of awesome podcasters talking about it. That's what you're going to hear this week. It's I Married a Witch with Veronica Lake. I mean, we're going to talk about Veronica Lake on the podcast this week. Well, well, I'm not, but Steve and Jeff are. So thank you, Steve. Really appreciate you organizing all of this. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to be part of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. I do want to let you know what's coming up before we get into everything here. Next week, I do have an episode of the podcast that I recorded right before I fully succumbed to COVID. That's with Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. I had these grand plans to do uh, a November of Vincent Price movies. I was going to call it Price Giving. I was reaching out to people, uh, Dominique Lamsey, Scott and Tracy Morris, and Chris McMillan about doing some Vincent Price content on the show. I even was talking to Beth about maybe having her come on to talk about a Vincent Price film. And I'll even let her pick the movie. But again, I got sick. So you're going to hear the one episode that I recorded for Price Giving next week when I have Chris McMillan on the show to talk about House of Wax. Yes, I've talked about House of Wax in the past, but there's a very specific reason why he wanted to talk about House of Wax. And Chris is another one of those guys, man. You know, I wanted to honor him and respect those wishes. And besides, House of Wax, definitely worth another look at. It's a great film. It's one of the best Vincent Price movies out there, hands down. And you know, Fight me on that if you don't agree with me. So that's what you're going to hear next week. I just wanted to give you a heads up, though, because... About halfway through that recording, I really started to feel it. So, while Chris is great, my energy levels whoosh, go way down. Also, I'm hoping that by next week, we'll have everything kind of back to normal outside of my recording that it was recorded pre-COVID. You're going to have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. I think he sent me a segment for House of Wax. I'll have to double check. I don't remember, to be completely honest. That's how out of it I am. Also, Mark Matsky did a beta capsule review, I think, that was supposed to be on an episode that I haven't run yet. I need to go back through and kind of recreate everything. Mark, if you're listening, maybe resend me the most recent segment if I didn't already run it, please. Anyway, uh, that's what's going to be happening on the podcast. As far as the Twitch stream goes, the Monster Kid Movie Club, it's up and running. I haven't done anything there either outside of just run some movies. And I have been letting the first eight Gamera movies playing on a continuous loop since the day after Thanksgiving. And I'm probably going to go ahead and just leave that up and running because there is always somebody in there hanging out, watching the flicks. And oh my goodness, I just switched over to that and uh, I had forgot that they had taken some Star Wars footage and used it in, in Gamera Super Monster. Wow. Anyway, uh, that's what's running over there on the, on the, uh, Twitch stream right now. And I'm just going to leave that going. I may rotate some things out, maybe put in some other things and all that. You won't have me live. You won't have all the stuff. You won't have the amazing pre-show from Scott, but you'll have something there. So if you're looking for something to watch, just look up monster kid radio at twitch.tv and you'll find it there. Uh, other things going on. I'm starting to write again. There was a big writing project that was supposed to be released around Halloween. Life got in the way. I pushed it back to a Christmas-ish release. I got really sick. Not really sure what's going to happen with that at this point. But there is a big project coming 
from Monster Kid Radio that doesn't just involve me that you should see available within the next couple of months, hopefully sooner rather than later. And then personally, I'm working on a novel right now. I'm working on a Mark Temple short story right now. So we have those things in the works. And my Monster Kid Writer YouTube channel, I'm going to be making a return to that probably next week. So if you're on YouTube, look up Monster Kid Writer or go to monsterkidwriter.com. And that's Monster Kid and the writer, like, you know, a dude that writes. And you'll be able to keep up to date with all things on my writing front. My throat's still not 100%. And I actually feel like my voice has changed a little bit as well. And I'm not overly comfortable with that, but it is what it is. I would not wish COVID on anybody. And I didn't even have the most severe case of it. I mean, it was pretty bad, but I just, man, it was awful. And I just highly recommend that you do whatever it is you need to do to keep yourself safe and healthy. Please. I care about all of you. I, you know, I, I am a compassionate guy and I care about most people, but you, you in particular, you're a monster kid. You're one of, I'm one of you, man. I don't want to see any of us get sick or, or deal with what I dealt with. So do whatever you got to do to keep yourself safe and healthy and you know, fingers and tentacles crossed that we can all kind of move into the next year, putting most of this behind us. I hope, I hope. All right. We're going to go ahead and get into the conversation with Steve and Jeff here in a moment. I married a witch starring Veronica Lake. How cool is that? It's a cool flick, man. I, I really enjoy this movie. It's actually, you know what? I'm going to say it. It's probably one of my favorite 1940s movies. Is it the 40s? I think it's the 40s, right? Let me double check. Yeah, 1942. That was exciting podcasting, huh? Let me double check something in Google Live, and I'm not even going to edit that out. You know? I'm just going to keep it real. I've rambled for about 10 minutes. Enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get on to Jeff and Steve. I Married a Witch. And uh, you'll hear from me next, hopefully next week, for that episode with Chris McMillan and I where we talk about the Vincent Price classic House of Wax. And we'll go from there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Monster Kid Radio. Yes, as you can tell, I am not Derek. I am Steven Turek. How you doing today, everybody? I know you wish Derek was doing the voice. I think we all want to hear Derek's voice over my voice, but alas, he is ill. So I called, I contacted him and said, do you need me to do another fill-in episode like I did when he moved? He said, yes. And I'm so, that's, that's the bad news. Derek's not here. The good news, there is an episode. Better news. I'm joined by Jeff Bowens from the Classic Horrors Club podcast. How you doing today, Jeff? Fantastic, Steve. It's good to hear you again in this particular venue. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And um, I think we're recording this just a few days before Thanksgiving. So depending on when Derek puts it out, this could be out right after Thanksgiving or a little later. Um, depends on how he's feeling with you know, doing it. Well, I'll be doing the editing part and all he has to do is tag in his intro and exit. Um, so we'll see how if it gets out right around that time, but happy thanks belated Thanksgiving, everybody. And one of the things I'm thankful for is actually one of the several things I'm thankful for is family, friends, 
and everything that's been going on with getting a chance to talk to people about different stuff and just getting that sense of camaraderie with you have with people you know and care about. So I'm not the friends and family is what I'm thankful for. And I'm also thankful to Derek for doing Monster Kid Radio because that was the reason for me to start my podcast was listening to his and him having me on as a, a, a guest a few times. And that's what started me up. How about yourself, Jeff? Do you have anything you're thankful for? I just would add one thing, family, friends, and monsters. That's what I'm thankful for. I do listen to the Classic Cars Club podcast, and you had in November, you guys want back to nature, a muck. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did a great double feature of Frogs from 1972 and Day of the Animals from 1977. Richard, on his blog monstermoviekid.wordpress.com is doing a whole month of nature run amok so he's talking about or writing about other movies as well one of my favorite well my sweet spot is definitely the 70s and then that, that sub sub genre of nature gone wild uh, is, is really fantastic and this is a sub 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 genre of eco horror because the reason the animals in both movies were going amok was because of something in the environment or people abusing them over the years. So it's just a terrific good time to see both of those movies. Oh, exactly. I'm looking forward to one day when you guys do prophecy and, um, piranha and grizzly. Oh, you got to do grizzly. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? We may get to some point where we, uh, I was going to say running out of movies, but I don't know. Those are good choices. We may, we'll put them on our list. We have a huge list. Now, before we get to the movie that you and I are going to be talking about, I Married a Witch from 1942, we're going to do something that's done on Derek's show most of the time, and that is the Classic Five. So you ready, Jeff, to do the Classic Five? five I'm ready as I can be. How are you going to embarrass me today? Jeff, having you on the show is never an embarrassment. It's a, it elevates it. Because otherwise, I'd be by myself, and Derek would be like, "What in God's earth is this?" <laughs> if this wasn't a few days before Thanksgiving, I think you'd eaten too much turkey. <laughs> it, it could be the it could be nature coming back at me. Okay, so question number one for you, Mister Owens: What one black and white monster movie would you like to see colorized? What black and white monster movie would you like to see in color? The first thing that pops to mind is I was a teenage Frankenstein. And I'm just thinking of that face uh, in black and white. It's got such texture. Uh, the colors in that would just be fabulous. Love to see that. That's an interesting choice. I, I mean, I think that's gone different than anybody that's ever answered that question before. And did. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. It make you wonder if, if they did if they did the good colorization and you know and that kind of stuff because I always wonder when people when they're filming black and white you know people are wearing colors that will augment the blacks and the grays but they don't always be fashionable for somebody to wear in real life like when they're walking around you look at them like what in the god's earth are they wearing <laughs> so hopefully they'd match the colors that would make it look sensible. Yeah, I could have tried to butter up Derek and said creature because if they got the green of that costume correct that might be good to see in color i'm sure that's the only thing you want to see in color in the in creature from the black <laughs> <Lagoon>. yeah 
We know what Derek wants to see in color from Creature from the Black Lagoon. All right. But moving oh. on. <laughs> what is your favorite mummy movie? What is your favorite mummy movie? After you do it, it has to be Hammer's 1959, The Mummy. Why? I know it's, so, my, it's mine too, so I have my reasons why, but what, what are yours? Okay. Uh, well, it, it's just Chris Early's performance as The Mummy. I think it's a little, it's going to sound ridiculous, but underrated. I mean, he really does a good characterization of The Mummy that's truly threatening and menacing. Peter Cushing, you know, has got that energy. He's terrific. It's I would say the most entertaining. I mean, other mummy movies get either a little too long, maybe, or silly. And it's just a, a good, good movie that I think that anyone could watch and enjoy, whether you're a, a monster kid or not. I agree with you. I'm not going to argue. Now, you guys. Do you have any other reasons? Oh, for me? Um, yeah. A lot of those I put in our, on the Hammerama episode that Alistair and I did, but they pretty much carry on with the same thing you did peter cushion and christopher lee's performance i think christopher lee's mummy having more uh, power and, and movement and was also featured more in the movie where a lot of people the, the boris karloff one i love that one too but he's only the mummy in the raps so to speak for a short period of time both of them are great movies this is just a matter of like which one you consider your favorite and you know you and I both go with the hammer one. And it's also in color, which could help our, our judgment there, too. Yes, I was going to say the sets are beautiful, sumptuous. The soundtrack, the score, the music, it's just a terrific package all, all together. You see, that would be interesting if the um, Boris Karloff mummy was colorized. Then you could, would that change your opinion? Mm. <laughs> one well, of those things we'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah. Now, you and Rich recently had an episode a few months back where you did two Sinbad movies. So this question is probably apropos that I that pulled out of the deck. What is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? What is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? Gosh, since you, you put the, that episode in my mind and we kind of did our ranking of, and, and of those movies that we watched, I'm going to just do the same one and it's, not going to be what everybody thinks. It is the wooden mast on the ship that comes to life. Uh, it just, the if you really study that, it's like, it's just amazing. It, it creaks like wood would really creak, and it, it moves like you imagine it really would. I know that's not one of the fantastical creatures like the Cyclops or something. And I'm, you know, I'd probably have to think about it harder, but... I'm just going to go with what's easy and say that wooden masked woman, whatever you call that. Yeah, for me, I, I, my answer used to was always is usually Talos. But today, if you'd ask me that question, I would say Medusa, just because I'm in a Clash of the Titans mood. <laughs> now, this question is kind of interesting because one of them just had a movie come out that you and I talked about, and another, and it's also having a TV show come out from one of the other properties. So. The monsters or the Adams family? <laughs> oh gosh, I I'd say the monsters. I saw it more growing up. I am probably. Uh, I think. Well, I don't know. All the characters are so iconic. I was going to say I'm probably more familiar with the characters. It's just more comfortable a show because I have seen more of it. 
I think, though, if I really dug into it, probably the sensibilities of the Adams family would be more my style. But uh, as of today, I, I say monsters. And today's what we're asking the question. We're not asking about it tomorrow <laughs> or next or next week. It's today. And and I picked this question out because one of the actors in the movie that we're going to be talking about played these two characters, these two roles. Who else should have could have played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh gosh. That is a toughie. Well, I know he's the answer in a lot of questions like this, but what about Vincent Price? What about him? It's it your may choice. Be, <laughs> I will say Vincent Price then. I can see it would be maybe a, a little more campy uh, comedic performance maybe, uh, but I could see him being very calm like a scientist and then just going wacky when he drinks the potion. So I, I see Vincent Price in any movie that he is not in. So that's what I'll say. And you said it and you said it rather well. Congratulations. <laughs> if, if you would ask me the same question, I would have told you just for the fun of it, just because I'd love to see it. William Shatner. Oh gosh. Didn't <laughs> wouldn't you say he sort of played that like in the mirror, mirror episode or. Well, you can say the mirror, mirror episode. I was thinking the one where he also went into the, um, the teleporter and got transported when he got beamed up and he was split into good and evil. Oh, okay. I can't remember the name of the episode. I know Rich Chamberlain would know right off the top of his head and is probably laughing at me. <laughs> but Well, I don't claim to be a huge Star Trek fan, so um, I think Mirror Mirror was pretty good of me. Oh, I think so, too. I'm not arguing that. You know. uh, I, I think the one we got literally got split into good and evil, which is a lot of times the double yeah. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde story goes with. Yeah. Um, I, I think it would be interesting to see his portrayal. The line yeah. reading would be just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. Well, we did the classic five and I hope everybody liked Jeff's answer. If you didn't like Jeff's answers or fault of different answers of your own, Hey, that's what feedback is for. And you can leave comments on the Facebook post that Derek has put up when the episode goes out or email Derek or better yet, send Derek a voicemail and say, Hey, these are my answers for those classic five questions because the best thing about Derek's show and like all shows, and as all creators, we, I can speak for this. We like to hear feedback and get input from people because otherwise we feel like we're working in a bubble. We have no idea what is clicking with everybody. But speaking of, I clicking, concur. speaking of clicking, I married a witch from 1942. I watched it for the first time yesterday. You have seen it before. Derek has never covered it on the show. We have a witch. We have a, you can say a male witch and a female witch or a witch and a warlock, whatever way you want to go with it. So we have two monsters per se in the movie, but it's a comedy. And I like comedies like arsenic, old arsenic and old lace and those kind of things. Um, we got to talk about, we get to talk about this one. Cause Derek said, Hey, pick a movie. And I was, you know, it's hard to find a movie that he has not covered yet. And this is one of the few. And I would say that there's actually three monsters. If you take into account Estelle Masterson, the fiance who the first time Jennifer Veronica Lake sees her says she looks like a shrew. 
Well, she definitely was a shrew. That that is that is true. <laughs> increasing like a snowball, increasingly so as the movie goes on. Yeah, I never, I never thought. I, I don't think of her as a monster. I think of her as a, a, a person you do not want to have a relationship with. Which it seemed like Frederick March's character was doomed to to suffer. And um, for those wondering what the movie is about, do you, you want to give them a brief um, synopsis of the plot? Sure. So it starts out in, I don't know if we know what year, but centuries ago, and a witch and her father have been discovered, and they are burned at the stake, and they swear their revenge on the descendants of the people who are burning them. I think that's a familiar trope that we've seen in, in a lot of movies, perhaps. But then through the years, we see a montage of this revenge being enacted, which are some very funny themes of couples that uh, are, let's just say, not really getting along in their marriage. But they reappear when lightning strikes the tree where they were buried in modern times, I guess 1941 or 42. And they, of course, run into Frederick March's character, uh, Wooly. I forget, what is his name? Wallace Wooly. Wallace Wooly. And it was WW because the uh, embroidery on his robe. And she decides to, you know, enact the revenge herself, I guess. But through a turn of events, kind of a little bit of a screwball comedy, not too screwball. But she does end up really falling in love with him. And it just kind of goes from there. I don't want to spoil too much of it. I thought, I thought it was really done well. And for those wondering, Frederick March, as you said, plays the, the lead male character. And Veronica Lake plays Jennifer eventually Jennifer Woolley, because it is called, I don't think we're giving anything away when it says the title says I married a witch, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that they end up married. And I, I just thought it was a really good, those two had some good chemistry, even though I know from reading behind the scenes, they did not have good chemistry. It looked good on screen, which shows their acting chops. Yeah. I was surprised to read that. I didn't realize, I don't know much about either of them really as far as behind the scenes and that was kind of surprising and apparently he was as difficult as she was and then getting them together was something but you know sometimes that creates sparks and creates chemistry so that could have actually contributed it could have i mean it it definitely worked out and for a while from about half the movie she was totally trying to be evil to his character so i guess in a sense she was doing it off to, maybe she was a method actor <laughs> <laughs> right. You never know. It's always worth to think about. It could have been. <laughs> Before we recorded, you told me you watched it late last night and your wife had made a deal with you to watch it with you, but she fell asleep in the first few minutes. And I sort of think she missed the, my favorite part of the movie is just that very beginning because back in pilgrim days, they treated, they treated a witch burning like a sporting event. <laughs> they had confessions. They had, um, intermission, you know, it was, uh, really funny. I, I enjoyed that part. That totally took me by surprise when all of a sudden it's like, now we go to intermission. We come back for intermission. We're going to have the, um, the witness. We're going to be taking care of him. And I was just like, and it, it's, it's almost like you hear the guy, I forgot what he was yelling, but it's almost like popcorn peanuts, you know, but it was not yelling that he was yelling, whatever would have been, um, the equivalent back in the pilgrim times that people were buying them up. And it was just like, what in the world? 
But that was the entertainment. I mean, people used to go back out in the old west and in the olden times to public executions because that was the uh, the only thing going on. What I liked about that and then continuing through that montage I mentioned was that Frederick March always played the man in the particular couple. And I just now thought of something at the very beginning when he's the pilgrim and uh, I think it's his mother. I don't think it's his, the woman he's going to marry, but she asked him, are you sure that she's a witch? And there seems to be a little bit of doubt. Now her father, she's certain is a sorcerer there. He has no doubt, but, I wonder if that little doubt he has sort of plays into the future as kind of uh, an indication that maybe he's not all bad and that might give her a little reason to, to slack up on him in present time. Yeah, I also thought in the beginning when the way he was saying it to her, you hear so many times about people being accused of being a witch because they turned down the advances of certain people in the community and it was like oh she she ordered or commanded me her voice told me to do these things in the barn and i'm thinking okay which way is this going you know i could you know i was just thinking are they taking it into a direction where i would be totally shocked for a 1942 movie <laughs> or you know it, it really made me wonder where they were going they went they went different where she actually was a witch and she was able to as we found out later on when she came back, use verbal commands and people would do that. So it's it, so um, which made it sound like he was being seduced by her to do certain things that he did not want to do. And, it, and that's what led him to figure out she was a witch. So I think he didn't want to do it, but he had to do it in his mind because she was commanding him. So I don't think she was nearly as evil as her, her father was. But even then, he seemed to be more of a mischievous evil than than uh, I think if this movie was remade nowadays, this could be take this could be definitely taken to a dark, horrific turn. <laughs> there was another point too where I thought, ooh, 1941, and that was when on the eve of his wedding, and Jennifer has ingratiated herself into his life and in his bedroom. Uh, I'm sure they just cuddled, you know, overnight when they went to bed together. I'm sure that's what it was. Well, they never went to bed together that night. That first night, he stayed up all night. Oh, that's right. They sat up all night, didn't they? He said he was there talking with her because they showed the clock moving, and he just, and that's when, and that's when he started to fall in love with her because they spent all night talking, and um, but he still was going to go through with the wedding. That he was going to marry that 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 shrew of a purse, that shrew of a person that the curse was set up to do, and the father was the one that suggested to her that the best torch would be for him to fall in love with somebody that he couldn't have. And that's when she figured, Oh, I'm going to make him fall in love with me. And then she'll, he'll never be able to have me <laughs> and that'll really get him. And then of course that uh, backfires on her, so to speak. Yep. And he falls in love with her anyway. Exactly. And, uh, which, which, which leads them to get married in the end. Again, you know, we're kind of spoiling the ending, but it's, it's in the title. I mean, it's, it's like when you, if you go on a movie called snakes on the plane and, and there's, I don't think you're giving anything away to tell people, well, there's snakes on a plane. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> or I was a yeah, teenage freak and stuff. Very, it's very clever there. And it is, um, 
oh, I don't want to say self-aware, but it's, it's smart in that if you uh, died in pilgrim time and came back in modern time, things would be different. You wouldn't understand the language. Maybe you'd think it was funny how teenagers talk, you, how people dressed, and oh my goodness, they dance so close. So I like that they just took a moment to, you know, put that detail in there. It just adds sort of another layer to it. Uh, and that, that part about the kids talking, I, I wish I could have jotted down there. It was like every cliche or teenage thing that people said in the 40s, the, the, this boy and girl were saying back and forth to each other. It'd be, well, today, like kids, however they communicate, uh, speaking of a language I don't understand either. But uh, so that was cute. Uh, I thought the interesting thing was they could have spent more time on it, but I got to give credit. The movie is a lean, mean 77 minutes. I mean, it it keeps moving, which is a good pace. And if, I think if you had it as an hour and a half, if it was done as a 90-minute feature now, you could spend more time with them being a, a fish out of water with the, the wordage and the actions that people are doing because her character is supposed to be 290 years old. Though for 270 years, she was under a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and her father was what, um, 6,000, 8,000 years old, something like that? Because he was back yeah, in Pompeii know. and he was before, I think he was even before Pompeii and those kind of things. So, so his, her father was extremely um, ancient, so to speak. Something common in movies of this era, and I automatically think of It's a Wonderful Life, because what do you think about when you think about that movie, Steve? Like, what's the main plot point you think of? Oh, Claire, uh, you know, Clarence getting in his wings. You got to remember, It's a Wonderful Life I've only ever seen once. Okay. Well, you remember him, like, seeing different stages of his life and realizing his life is wonderful. That happens, like, in the last few minutes. Most of that movie, and it's a much longer movie, is the setup. You know, that's a little bit like this, not to the extreme, but if you like remember the the funny parts and the car flying and all that, that's really at the last. There's a lot of setup. And I think that's just made the way movies were made back then. Oh. And it, it's not a detriment at all. I do think, like you said, if the running time were longer, that could be a detriment. Yeah, I don't think I, it keeps moving because I will admit when I was watching it, and I think maybe it's because more modern movies, you know, you and I have seen this movie's 80 years old, 80th anniversary. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And it's that kind of stuff where I kept thinking he was going to marry her sooner. I kept thinking, okay, now they're going to get married. But the wedding scene. Oh, yeah. That was Marx Brothers type comedy going on with the different things. It's not... Marx Brothers per se with the, you know, but it was how things kept stopping and starting, stopping and starting. The lady kept singing every time there was a thing and people just wanted to get it done. It was that, that thought was done very well. And it, it really, it, it ran that joke for me perfectly. It was, it was just like, Oh my Lord. Cause all these other things kept happening to pause the wedding and it was getting more and more absurd as to what was going to happen and you know, what, what they were going to do. And so each time, well, the first time it was, come on, do do something, you know, we've got to clean this up. And so the woman started singing and every time something happened, she'd start singing. There was the same song, I love you truly, something like that. Sorry for singing. I had to look her up because I thought, and I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't know that I can 
consider that good singing. I mean, I think it was done comically, uh, kind of high and shrill. But that woman's name was Helen St. Rayner. And she was only in seven movies. Interestingly, coincidentally, the last movie she made was called The Member of the Wedding in 1952. But these were the roles that she played. Singer, soloist, piano player and singer, opera singer, organist. So she obviously was a musician of some kind and was used in movies at times to do music. Who knows? She might have been a vocal coach in between. And, and sometimes after like, okay, let's bring her in for this scene. We want you to play this way. And whatever. She did a great job because she'd get in there and eventually, you know, she gets told to shut up at the very end. I don't know. I thought, I thought it was funny. I, I enjoyed that part a lot. Yeah, the humor ranges from silly to, I think, pretty clever and smart. And the director, Rene Claire, he has some visual flourishes that he does with the camera. For that, I think of when he, I think it's when he first gets home and she's sitting there in his living room. And he asked, how'd you get in here? And she said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And the camera panned to a broom and then pans back up. So I thought that was funny. And then on the extreme silly side, when she finally tells him that she's a witch and he doesn't believe, and remember which one of them says, well, if, if she could make him win the election the next day, that would prove that she's a witch. Well, she said, so, she said that enough, he said he wasn't going to win. And she said, oh, if I have you win the election, it was her. Okay, good. Thank you. So, you know, the next day she does her magic and all through the land, people are, are they literally... The, the, the mist passed by them. And okay. And so they changed their votes. And, and any, anyway, everyone's chanting for they want Wooly. We want Wooly, uh, including a, a parrot in a cage that somebody's pet and <laughs> babies in the nursery at the hospital. Everybody is chanting, We want Wooly. And I love the election results as they're going through because he, he, he basically had every vote and, the other, and his opponent had zero because he goes, Even he voted for me. Yeah, so what happens, I mean, he was the, the front runner at, at the beginning. He's a great man. We see scenes where the townspeople love him, and they're all behind him in the election. And then after that wedding, it, it's kind of blown, and he becomes a, a scoundrel because his fiance finds him kissing Jennifer, right? Yes, and also her father ran the, ran the newspaper and was the one pushing for him. So, of course, newspapers. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yes. So he was the guy that ran the newspaper. He was a big, powerful man in doing that. And that was the reason he was the front runner. And that's when he was endorsing the other person. He's like, you're going to lose because I'm going to endorse that one. And we're going to run this stuff and just totally end it for you. So it goes back to, you can almost make a comparison to modern day. That's how much the news media really can portray people as good or, pot or negative and, and how people will just follow along in a lot of, in a lot of cases with the media at that time and how much power that they actually have with influencing elections. And I think that that's, that's something that's hold true before then and still holds true today. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yes. Imagine if they'd had social media. Well, what was the social media of its time in a sense, but yeah, I guess in the form of a, a myth that it comes from witches. Yeah, I, I thought it was smoke, but yeah, because they were like they were smoke beans. But I mean, it, it, it's hard to tell. That was an interesting um, effect for 1942, where 
when they both, her and her, her father came back and they were um, smoke, so to speak. And um, they're like showing the thing. So, you know, they're just shooting smoke out of the tubes and all that stuff. So, you know, you know, it's working, but I thought it was interesting how they, how they pulled that off, which of course led to a big plot turn at the end of the movie. Yes. I thought that was a very good effect. I, I mean, I didn't see any tube or anything. And then the fact that yeah, the father, they would sometimes hide inside a bottle. And the father, of course, was a drunk and would get in a liquor bottle and have a drinker tin while he was in there. And that, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about Bewitched and if this has any in, influence on that. But it reminded me, too, of I Dream of Genie with the way that that Mr. Smoke was going in and out of the bottles. That was a, a really good effect. Yeah, which, of course... Did I dream of Genie get the idea for it? You'll never, we'll never know. I mean, because Genie bottles and all that stuff always use the smoke and their mist uh, type effects. And it would, as to what came first or last, I have no idea. What influenced who? You, you can go crazy trying to figure that stuff out 80 years after the fact. I mean, that's just. Right. That could be nuts. But yeah, definitely, I think it influenced Bewitched. There was another movie that also influenced. No. Bell Book and Candle. Yeah, Bell Book and Candle. So those these those two movies are what they they say influenced the creation of Bewitched. Yeah, the creator of Bewitched, Saul Sachs, uh, said in an interview, those were his two inspirations for creating Bewitched. The other special effects, I think, I mean, it's not a special effect filled movie by any means, but the big one would be the flying car, and I I thought that was a really charming effect. It. It was really good. I mean, as far as not seeing any wires, I mean, you could definitely tell that it was a miniature at one point and a, you know, a screen behind, but it was very well done, I thought. And I really liked that sequence, especially when it crashed in the tree. That was very well done. I thought it was good effects. I mean, it, it, especially 1942, you know, I, I thought it was, I thought it went well, played well. I agree with you. It, it, it worked. They had a lot of the traditional effects with doors shutting on their own, uh, the broom. I like the broom moving and doing certain things, you know, that was, that was kind of cool, you know, that, which of course was the wires and all the other stuff and strings, which you don't see. I mean, there's, there's simple effects on some of those, but still done well. And some of the, some of the things they did was reverse editing, you know, reverse the film when they had her going up the banister instead of down, you know, that kind of thing. So there were, there were some obvious ways how they did it, but I like how her and her father had to be their get their new bodies via fire. They had to be a fire and then they're like a Phoenix being reborn. Yeah, that was interesting. I, that was an original idea. I've never noticed that in any other story or movie. And I, I thought it was really funny when you talked about, I thought you were leaning this way when she came, when she was reborn, she was born, reborn naked, of course, fire. Mm -hmm. And he's given her like a, like a, a jacket to put on and eventually she comes to his place and there he is. And he goes, pays this money to the taxi cab driver and, and, and says, just give her this money, whatever you have. And he goes to her when you tomorrow, whenever go to the police station and give him next time you see a police officer, give him the jacket and as the cab's going by, you see the jacket get thrown out. And now, you know, she's naked except for shoes. <laughs> and I was just thinking, Whoa, that cab driver, when he looks back there, he's going to be like, what the, and then when he did look back there, she's gone and, and that kind of thing. So it was just kind of funny. Yeah. And then some of the, I guess I do in a minute want to talk about all the writers that were involved, but there's some good, even just 
verbal lines. And one of my favorites was when after the wedding, the father, Jennifer's father is arrested and is in jail. And so Wallace Woolley goes to see him and he is slightly incoherent, the father. He doesn't remember any spells because that's one thing I thought, well, you're a sorcerer. Can't you get out of jail? But he's so addled from drinking that he can't even remember a spell to get out of there. So Wooly says to him, I'm afraid you've got a hangover. And the father says, don't tell me what I've got. I invented the hangover. It was 1892 BC. <laughs> got a kick out of that for some reason. And that's what I thought was funny. That's why I said he was more of a mischievous evil because a lot of the stuff that he did, or, or at least that we hear about, is stuff that is pranksterous and, 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 and things along those lines. But yeah, I did like that. I also liked how the people, his, his cellmates in the other thing, were being driven nuts by him saying, oh, I'm a witch, and he keeps trying to do the spells, and they're like, oh, shut up. And they're like, we couldn't sleep all night because of this guy. Yeah. So I have a question for you, and this is going to be another spoiler. I mean, we practically spoiled the whole thing, but she, the father gets mad at her for, for basically what she's done and that she's kind of, well, that she's fallen in love with him. And so he takes away her powers. So that is a part of that that happens near the end of the movie. My question is, did she ever get him back? That was going to be a question I was going to ask you, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then my further question is, at, at the very end, another spoiler, They it's seven years in the future, I think, and they have three children, and the girl's running around playing on the broom, and Jennifer says, tells her to stop playing with the broom. So do you think any of the children inherited the witching powers? Oh, I think so. And here's the thing. They're kind of implying that it would go to the female. Like when when those two were getting married um, at the one in mm. our house or whatever, the one lady's like, oh, I hope you have, you know, three, I hope you have three boys that look like him and three girls that look like you. And, and when she hears the girls, she has this like, uh-oh, worry in her thing. But yet the father is also a witch and is obviously male. <laughs> So I, I, I'm thinking, why would it only go to the female, you know, unless it's something with whoever is the magically powered one that goes to that side, you know, if you're if, like her father, but then again, it wouldn't make any sense because her father's a guy and then she's a girl. So I don't know, you know, <laughs> how it all happen and why it would only be, the, I think it would be, it could be any of them personally, but. I think so. so. Left interpretation, if you want, uh, there could have been a sequel, just like you know, Bewitched. Many years later, had the sequel, Tabitha, or the spinoff series, Tabitha, about their little girl being grown up and being a witch. Oh yeah, and that, maybe Samantha Montgomery was their daughter. Maybe she was that little girl. Well, that's true. But to go back to your point, though, before. Did she get her powers back? Well, she gets turned back. She gets pulled out of the body that she was in and it was back to being smoke and then goes back into the body at the end. Now we don't see her use any powers, but then again, she also made this promise to try not to use any powers from that point. And, it, and, it, and there's not much left in the movie at this point. I mean, we're talking just, just scant minutes left to go. 
I think she still has her powers because she's still so, and that's how she can pass them on to other people. It would be interesting because there is a book that followed along, like it was a sequel to this one. And I'm looking, I'm trying to find the name of the book again. That was a story different than this. It was a sequel written by um, oh. Madsen. And well, while you're looking, I'll, I'll talk about the story that this was based on. It started out as a story, The Passionate Witch by Thorne Smith. Thorne Smith is the man who created Topper and wrote, there were several Topper movies. So he knew a thing or two about the supernatural. I actually looked, this is available like for your Kindle or from Apple Books. And I read the synopsis of it and it sounded, you know, word for word like the movie, except near the end, it seems like it takes a really different turn and gets a little bit even scary maybe. So I know it's not a faithful adaptation, but definitely the uh, source material is there. Bats in the Belfry. Hmm. It was now that one was totally written by Madsen who finished the book, as you said, for, Smith, so it was totally done by him. But it'd be interesting to read Bats and Belfry to see it might answer any of those questions. Of course, like you, like I said, how faithful was the book to the movie? I mean, the movie to the book. Uh, it's it's hard to say, but it'd be interesting to read both of them and then see one how close the movie and the book go together, and then oh, what would the what would the sequel? What could have happened in the future? Had I had more time to prepare, I would have liked to read The Passionate Witch so I could talk a little bit more about it. But, hey, that's all right. Well, yeah. the, the screenplay, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and I just now put this two and two together. You said that the wedding sort of reminded you of a Marx Brothers type thing. One of the writers, Robert Pirosh, wrote A Night at the Opera and A Day of the Races. So that may be where that came from. And when I see a lot of names like this, and I don't really understand what each one does. I mean, we have the original story, the book. We have a screenplay that two people co-wrote. We have story completion by Norman Matson. We have two people that wrote the dialogue, or some dialogue at least, one of them being the director. And then we had a contributing writer, Dalton Trumbo. And uh, just, I kind of wonder, a lot of times for me, that's a danger sign like this. Too many people. But in this case, I kind of, if, if they do have different approaches, they really merge together very well. Yeah, definitely the director got it under control in the editing, whatever. It, it made it work. So it'd be interesting to read the original script and then to, then to see what it was going to be like, to see how much change, how many changes it did. Because some of the changes could have been minor things that, really wouldn't have, you know, they could have made a little bit of a difference here and there, but maybe not a huge um, departure from the original scripting. It's hard to tell. I'd like to know more about the making of this. I mean, we already talked about uh, Frederick March and Veronica Lake and being difficult. And I think the director, Renee Claire, was kind of difficult too. With the writer I mentioned, Dalton Trumbo, he left because he disagreed with the director. And also Preston Sturgis was one of the producers and he left because of disagreements with the director so interesting the director had that much power usually the producers will get rid of the director instead of the other way around it is true and for those wondering why we keep why jeff keeps saying we wish you had more time as always when we're filming for Derek, we didn't have a lot of notice so it was kind of like a jeff i contacted him the, 
the day before we're recording this. And it's like, oh, you want to do this movie? So we literally had like less than a day to prepare to go forward and, and head into the movie that we're discussing. So it's, you know, there's always so much you can do in one thing, but it does make it where it's worth looking into. And for those that, you know, if Derek wants to do the episode down the road with somebody that's more authoritative on it, feel free because we're leaving a lot of openings there. But one thing I do want to mention, I think most most listeners know, Frederick March, of course, played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. But in case those that didn't know, that's why the tie into that question we did in the Classic Five, just to fill that. For those that did not know, that's why we brought that. That's why I didn't shuffle them like Derek normally did. I actually picked the five questions out because I was looking for things that could kind of tie in with what Jeff's done in the past and what we kind of went in with the movie. And I'll spring off from that because it's funny. I, and on our podcast, Rich and I always like to see what other genre movies were the actors in. And of course, first of all, this isn't really a horror movie. So you don't see a lot of horror cred with any of this cast. I mean, basically, I mean, overall, I would say it's a comedy. So you see these people that have been in comedies, but Frederick March, besides Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was in a terrific movie, Death Takes a Holiday from 1934. Not really horror, but, uh, Definitely, I mean, he's dead, so there's a little bit something there. And then just a totally non-genre movie. It's a thriller, but it's so good. I just want to recommend it if no one has ever seen Desperate Hours with Humphrey Bogart. That's a really terrific movie from 1955, and Frederick March is in that. And Frederick March is in one of my favorite films of all time, Inherit the Wind. Yep. Yep. And Veronica Lake, you know, I don't really know much about her. She has an interesting story and this was early in her career it seems like she was like a superstar but she burned out pretty quick and this was right in the area of when she was the superstar and she like a lot of actors kind of mid i guess 1946 really was what they think was her last best movie called the blue dahlia then she went to tv didn't really make any more movies between 1954 and 1965 but she was an appearance in 1966, Footsteps in the Snow. And then the re- whole reason I'm doing all this is here's some horror cred. Her last movie was Flesh Feast in 1970. And then, unfortunately, she died really early, 50, in 1973. But I, I re- um, Steve, I think I'm going to piggyback on this and, and watch Flesh Feast. It's available on YouTube and then. Whenever this gets posted, I'm going to write about fleshies and we'll have synchronicity. I know I'm going to watch flesh, flesh, uh, flesh feast also because it, it's, it has, it, I've read the um, synopsis of it somehow. Yeah. I, I, I got to see this movie. This goes, I'm like, yeah, exactly. How they pulled off this premise and how it worked. Yeah. Sadly, she died very young, but that was due. And a lot of that was due to what also kind of stalled her acting career, heavy drinking. And, mm-hmm. and she ended up dying of um, that down that took its toll on the body. And she ended up passing away, like you said, at the age of 50, just when she was getting everything, like in the last year or so or two prior to that, she was starting to have a rebirth with a book tour that she was doing and everything else. So she seemed to be on the upswing on, on some things. And sadly it was, um, well, not meant to be, but I guess you could say she went out on a high note, you know, for career wise, um, it, it seemed like her personal life was a, a shambles, so so to speak. I mean, it, it's it's one of those sad, tragic stories where substance abuse could lead to 
a lot of problems that, that plague a lot of people. The first time I watched it, you know, I was taking notes because I was going to write about it. And when you're doing that, you're looking down a lot at your iPad or whatever you're taking notes on. So I didn't really notice like anything special about Veronica Lake. This time I could pay a lot more attention to it. And she is just delightful. She, she is a beautiful young woman. She's so, I can't think of the word I was trying to say, not childish, but churlish maybe. She's just got a little ornery sparkle in her eye, and she's so, I, I can't think of the words, but you know what I mean? It's, it's very unique, and she's very appealing. Oh, yeah, she definitely, she, I could see why she was a pinup for so many um, U.S. Armed Force members during the war, and, and so on. You could see why she had a, a big career from her late teenage years, and this, I think she was like, about 19 or 20 years old, probably like 20 years old when she was filming this or doing this movie, uh, which significantly younger than Frederick March. But then again, her <laughs> character is significantly older because it's the character's 270 years old. And so you could, you could look at it either way. I mean, it is, I mean, she's like half his age during, you know, when they're filming this. And speaking of him, the one, the one last note I had was he, I could see Jack Benny playing his role. Sometimes his reactions and his just demeanor, like maybe standing still and just turning his head and looking or something, reminded me a lot of Jack Benny. And one thing I want to bring up, the father, Cecil Calloway as Daniel, is, is one of those guys I just love. You know, you just you just see him, and it's just like, oh, my Lord. he's he's He brings that comic relief. He's been in a ton of movies. And, and so on. I, I, I don't know. What, what did you think of the father, Cecil Calloway, in his portrayal? Oh, I thought he was terrific. Terrific. And I, you know, totally neglected him. I know he does have horror cred, and I couldn't tell you what they are now, but his name comes up a lot in movies of this time. Yeah, I remember him from, like, the Shaggy Dog, you know, and all these kind of things. You know, he's always in there, either in a, in a small part or a bigger part, like in this one. Uh, I don't know. What, what can you say about... Oh, he was in the Invisible Oh, good. Man. Well, he was in The Mummy's Hand. And The Invisible Man Returns. Yeah. Both in 1940. But they're like, they're like separate. He did so many movies in 1940. <laughs> a lot of movies in 1940. But yeah, so he's, he had a couple of them in there. And, and like, obviously, I think smaller roles. I'm not an expert on those two movies. And they didn't even come to mind that he was in them. I've just seen him in so many different things. Mm -hmm. Postman always rings twice. and that kind of, I'm thinking of more of his comedies and um, drama roles. I think of him more in there and, and probably in the drama movies, he, he probably brings in the comic relief element, you know, like, okay, we got this serious moment and you have that character there, but you know, he does a, he does a good job. He plays, he plays the role. Well, I mean, he's, he was, he has that mischievous glint in his eye. You can just see, the glow or the gleam in his eye. It's just, it's just perfect how he plays it. And I also love it how when he goes into where the wedding service is going to be and he starts to storm, the way he has his hair. <laughs> yes. Is, it gives that devilish look to it. it. It's perfect. I mean, he has that gleam in his, his face and, and how he tries to set up Wallace Woolley. It, it's just like, uh -huh, I thought you would do that. And it's like, man, this guy's evil. Like he, he's pulling it off. And I, I made fun of her earlier, but Susan Hayward played Estelle, fiance, 
of Wallace Woolley, who he does not get married to. That name is so familiar. And I think of her and I think of a, a, a famous Hollywood star. I don't really recognize many of her credits, though. Do you, are you familiar with Susan Hayward? Not, not in the horror genre. Uh, well, I mean, in any genre, I don't really know her. Valley of the Dolls. Is, well, is about yeah. It, you know, just because, yeah. you know, who doesn't remember Valley of the Dolls? And I, yeah, that uh, was late in her career. She did she win the Academy been. Award for Best Actress. Oh, for I what want, movie? For I Want to Live in 1958. Hmm. I always find it funny when I you peruse the credits of these people because some of the names of the movie, you think, oh, she was in a horror movie, and you look at it, and it's totally not a horror movie. <laughs> like, for example, she was in White Witch Doctor. Uh, she was in uh, something else, The Hairy Ape. Garden of Evil, none of which are, I think, not even thrillers. Uh, she's something I'm going to have to look up and watch her stuff, some of her stuff, because she was nominated five times for Best Actress and won once. So this is somebody who I feel I should know a lot better, and I've probably seen her work before. I'm just not recognizing her from this. Right. Huh. Yeah, I don't know any of those movies she's nominated for her late 40s to mid 50s yeah i've i've been pretty clinical in this assessment of the movie and i really is one of talking points it is a fun movie i thoroughly enjoyed it definitely will watch it again even though i've seen it twice it's it's funny it's smart it's sweet and you know even there's a kernel of meaning in there somewhere and i I'm a little slow these days i need to watch it again to get it but you know something about love being stronger than looks and uh, and things like that. He, there's a whole thing about who can fall in love or what would prevent them. And he, he almost lectures her on his viewpoints of love and falling in love. So it even sort of has a message. I just, I really enjoy this movie. I, I enjoyed it too. It's got a, criteri- a criterion release and this is November. So if this episode comes out around Thanksgiving, you can get it for half price. So you're talking 10 bucks and Blu-ray. And so you'd have a, a I'm sorry, DVD, a Blu-ray probably maybe $15 or $20, but whatever, it'd be half price off. I was able to watch it on HBO Max. So if you have HBO Max, you can watch it right now. I don't know. How did you watch it? Did you own it? No, uh, I don't remember how I watched it the first time, but I did watch it on HBO Max last night. Yeah, And so and, and, and that the HBO Max is the criterion copy because you can tell from the yes. opening part. So you're getting a nice, good print there. So if you already had HBO Max, Definitely watch it. It's 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 a fun watch. I put it. I like Arsenic and Old Lace better as a comedy type thing. But I I would say if I was doing ten stars or whatever, I'd give it a seven. Nice solid movie. Very enjoyable. Um, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It goes right in. You, you're going to have some nice smiles and some laughs. The wedding scene is is just like we said already. It is funny it, and there's some it's, it's some nice effects with it. And I, it's overall, it's an enjoyable movie. Definitely recommend. And if you do buy it on Amazon, remember, use the Monster Kid Radio associate link, which Derek has in his show notes and everything, so you can follow through that. And that way you can make sure you're giving Derek a few nickels, dimes, quarters, pennies, who knows, from Amazon. Why let Jeff Bezos get all the money? Give Derek M. Cook a little bit of the moolah. I rated it seven also, so we are in agreement with this. 
Oh, definitely. Definitely. Ex- entry, and it was my first time really re- seeing a movie with Veronica Lake and remembering it. You know, I've always heard the name, but this is the first, uh, the first time I can recall seeing her in a performance and doing it. And I enjoyed it. And I'm going to, kind of interesting enough, you and I are both going to see her last film in the very near future. Uh, it'd be interesting to see um, how the drinking and everything took its toll on her body. You know, how that, how much of an effect that had on her with her. And, and of course, knowing now what she didn't know at the time, she was suffering through health issues, which she didn't know until she went to the doctor. And, and then from what I read within a, like a week or two, she was pretty much passed away uh, from that. So it'd be, it'll be interesting, interesting to see and find out, but I definitely recommend I married a witch. Jeff does too. You can watch that's you know, actually you can watch Jeff on YouTube. You can also listen to Jeff on his show on the podcast and Jeff, tell them where they're at. So people know where to go. They can see you. They can hear you and rich together on what YouTube channel and what podcast. Yeah. So classic or club and you can probably, we try to direct people to our Facebook group page, the classic horse club podcast. We kind of have the overall theme of a club and we, want, we would love people to join the club. And so that's where a lot of feedback and conversation goes on amongst people. But otherwise, just search Classic Horrors Club. Uh, Rich and I both have our own blogs and then we come together for the podcast, which is hosted on SoundCloud, but you can get it anywhere. And then the YouTube channel, yeah, the same thing, search for it. They've got new handles and I think we're at Classic Horrors, maybe. I'm not sure, but... It, it's easy to find. And we do a podcast companion, which is a edited short. <laughs> I laugh when I say short version of our normally two to three hour long podcast. Yeah. And it's also, it's, it's, it's nice because you get to see the visuals to go with what they're talking about and something else that Jeff is leading out, leaving out is a lot of times when he refers to different movies that he'll post on his Facebook site and, and it has a little blog that you can read. A lot of them, he'll put the trailers on his YouTube channel. Mm. So you can, not only hear, hear his thing, you can go see the trailer or the movie he's talking about. I think most of the time, I think it's rare exceptions when you're not able to put the trailer up. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, the, our YouTube channel has playlists, one for episodes of the podcast companion, one for movie trailers. And on Fridays, I am in the middle of a series on 1970s TV horror movies. And so if they are available on, link, on YouTube, I a link into that playlist so we have a 1970s tv movie playlist on our youtube channel so very robust offerings everyone should visit otherwise i want to thank you jeff for helping me help Derek, and i hope you had a, since you and i recorded this prior to thanksgiving i hope you have a great thanksgiving enjoying it with your friends and family i'm sure you're going to have some spend some time with your daughter during that, that, that period. And I know you just saw your mom for like a, what, a couple of weeks in California. So you, I'm sure you had time to spend with her and your brother there. And then this time you get to spend time with the other part of your family and have a very enjoyable time. You, and I know you're going to treat your lovely cat London like royalty when Thanksgiving is going on. Yeah. So I'll break out her favorite meal, which is turkey dinner. Which is appropriate for Thanksgiving day. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you for asking me. Uh, I didn't mean that all to bring up, you know, short notice. That is totally fine. I'm not complaining. I just really appreciate you asking me and hope that we provided a good substitute for Derek. 
Yeah, I don't think we can ever substitute him, but at least we're giving you some a, a little bit of a fix to hold you over until Derek is fully healthy and able to get back in the saddle again. Once more, like I, I said, Derek, thanks for letting us help do the fill-in episode. As always, when you light the fire, I see it, and I will answer the call. <laughs> and, Jeff, thank you for coming and helping me at the last minute with this, too. And listeners, you know, Make sure you like and subscribe to Derek's show. You know, make sure you're following your podcast feed and share this and send him an email or voicemail feedback about what you thought the answers you would have done differently for the classic five. And also what your opinions are of I married a witch, you know, have you seen it before your first time? Hopefully we didn't spoil too much of it for you, but like I said, the title, it's kind of gives it away and, but it's still, we didn't seeing the different things that they do and how it's pulled off is very enjoyable and i think you'll have a great time enjoying it at least seven out of ten <laughs>